This episode features secret FBI recordings that contain profanity and other offensive language. We're including them in their unedited form to convey the full impact of this hateful rhetoric. How can somebody, how a community as kind as Garden City, as humble as Garden City, can still have people like that? And to, until today, it's just something beyond my mind, beyond anything that my brain can comprehend, that people can be that hateful. From ABC Audio, this is Truth and Lies, The Informant, Episode 5, The Patriot. Garden City, Kansas, the small, close-knit community in the southern Great Plains, a place anthropologists call an unlikely multicultural mecca, where 35 different languages are spoken in the high school, where there's a mini-replica of the Statue of Liberty in the middle of town. It felt like a very different place on October 14, 2016, the day that Patrick Stein, Gavin Wright, and Curtis Allen's plan was revealed to the public, exposing a white-hot hatred that had shadowed Southwest Kansas for years. Efer was at work when she received the news. Soon after, she drove straight to West Mary Street, to the apartment complex the Crusaders planned to blow up with their homemade bombs. She was familiar with the place. She lived down the street and would often visit friends and loved ones who lived there. When she arrived, she found a community in collective shock. Faces clenched in fear as word of the plot spread, possibly triggering horrific memories of the deadly violence back in Somalia. Some tenants wouldn't even leave their apartments, especially those with children. Others talked about fleeing Garden City immediately, which Ifra understood as she considered it too. The thought of what might have happened if the Crusaders weren't caught shook her to her core. It felt surreal. She'd come to Garden City and found refuge, only to wake up one day to learn that a terrorist cabal was secretly preparing to destroy any and all Muslims right here in her home. My heart just dropped and it's like, oh my goodness, not again. You know, and it's like, it's kind of brought back a flashback, like, oh my God, I have to do this again. I have to go back to my search for home. I've been running. My whole life I've been trying to find a home. And it's like, how long? How long do I have to do this? How long do I have to continue with this? When does it end? You know, where do I belong? Efer called her cousin in Minneapolis, the same one who brought her to Garden City in the first place. Her cousin lived in the Twin Cities now, and an anxious Ephra told her to prepare a bed for her. Ephra was ready to run, but then her mom called. And she's like, I heard something. Is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know, Ma. I, don't, I really don't know. This is what they're saying, and I don't know how I feel about it. And she told me, there are Muslim people there, Okay. Their fate is your fate as well. 
if they are staying there, you don't need to run away. Okay, I did not raise a girl who's going to run away. She reflected further on the Somali community and how it had established a foothold in Garden City. And she concluded it was her duty to stay put and comfort her Muslim neighbors in this moment of terror. Because if she ran, if everyone ran, wouldn't that mean the terrorists had succeeded? That they had, in effect, exterminated the Muslims from Garden City, even without a single bomb going off? Ifrit became determined to give the same comfort and support her mother provided her. The worst part is that I had to be strong. And I had to be strong because it wasn't just me. It was my community. I could see the panic within the community. I had to show my people that, hey, they're not going to win. We're going to fight this. And we don't let them determine who we become. The day after the arrests, a hastily organized meeting was held outdoors at the West Mary Street apartment complex. Garden City's police chief, Michael Utz, and FBI agent Robin Smith were on hand to answer any questions Somali residents had about the thwarted terror plot. Then there was a candlelight vigil, where residents turned out to show their support for the refugees, holding posters that read, We love our Somali neighbors. Those members of the larger community wanted the Muslim residents to know one thing, that they were part of this community, and that they wanted them to stay, not leave. When, when that happened, automatically the whole town somehow woke up and it's like, oh, wait a minute. We don't want people thinking that's what we stand for because that's not true. And we don't want the diversity to decrease in our town. We want people to stay here. We want to show people that we accept them regardless of who they are. The outpouring of support brought some comfort to many members of the Muslim community, but not all. And who could fault them? A candlelight vigil didn't change the fact that their lives had been threatened. A successful FBI operation didn't erase the feelings of distrust in the community or the history of surveillance they had endured since 9-11. Mistrust ran deep, and it couldn't be fixed overnight. We recently reached out to a few of the residents who left Garden City after the bomb plot was exposed. Six years later, one of them said they wanted to share their story but they were too afraid. They asked their friends and family if anyone would talk, but everyone said no. Even though the Crusaders had been arrested, even though a bomb didn't go off at West Mary Street Apartments, even though nobody died, the lives of these Muslim immigrants had been marked and changed forever. As the Somali community tried to find its way back to normal, so did Dan Day. But his adjustment didn't come easy. Long after the arrests, Dan was still struggling to come back to his old life, to his old self. You know, I thought PTSD was for, you know, you know, military, you know, law enforcement, stuff like that. You know, I didn't think, I didn't know much about PTSD. The circus had left town, but Dan was still stuck on the high wire trying to balance years of living in fear had left its mark on him. I mean, one, one particular nightmare that I, have to, I would have over and over, during the day, even just, I'd be 
walking up through the apartment complex and I could see everything leveled and I could I could smell smell and you know in I mean I know you, I couldn't really smell it but I could smell the burning smell in his nightmares it was like he'd never stopped the attack from happening Dan would wander through the bomb shattered West Mary Street apartments he'd see small fires still burning from the explosion the explosion he'd helped to plan and I was walking through, and there was a Somalia lady there, standing there by herself. And I went up to her, and she turns around. And she's holding this, like, mangled baby. And I'm like, my gosh, I, I screwed up. The bomb went off. I didn't do my job. In the months to come, he had to make peace with what would be his new normal. No longer could he take for granted that strangers were friends, or that friends didn't harbor secret feelings of resentment toward him. Since Patrick Stein had walked into the jail cell, counted heads, and realized that only one crusader was missing, Dan, he had the feeling there was a target painted on his back. People knew what he'd done. He got messages on Facebook saying he should be hanged or shot. Then one night, Dan returned home to find a dent in his front door. Had someone tried to break in, or was the dent always there? He was still on edge, still vigilant. Even though his days as an informant were behind him, there were other militia members rooting for the Crusaders out there. And what if a jury wouldn't convict them? All Dan could do was hang on tight and wait. The night he found the dent in the door, the FBI moved him and his family to a hotel for a few days. Better safe than sorry. While the FBI and federal prosecutors continued to build their case, Patrick, Curtis, and Gavin were held without bail. Until finally, the trial was scheduled for March 2018 in Wichita. In the courtroom... Assistant U.S. Attorney Tony Mativi was in his element. This was the moment he'd been waiting for for years. During the investigation, my role was to help the FBI, as I, as prosecutors do when working on these kinds of cases. Your job is to manage litigation risk, help the agents gather evidence, and make sure that all of the evidence that they gather is going to be admissible in court. Until the arrests, Tony had watched the case from a distance nudging the agents toward decisions that would give them the best possible outcome. The FBI had gotten this far, locking up the Crusaders. But now, in court, it was the prosecutor's job to find a way to keep them behind bars. And that comes down to charges. Initially, we just filed a WMD charge, weapon of mass destruction charge. And not long after the case got filed, I got a call from the supervisor at the civil rights section at DOJ who said, hey, we'd really like you to consider filing civil rights charges in this case. Can I talk with you about that? And I spoke with her. And my first thought was, this is crazy. From Tony's perspective, the WMD charge was the perfect fit. It came with the possibility of life imprisonment. It was straightforward to prove. And it was right in Tony's wheelhouse. He had prosecuted not one, but two major cases with WMD charges before. He just didn't see the added value 
of the civil rights charge. But the supervisor from civil rights kept pushing, and eventually, Tony was won over. In reality, maybe the best decision that I made early in the case was to listen to the supervisor from civil rights, because she was absolutely right. The civil rights aspect of this case was hugely important for a number of reasons. One is it sort of expanded the envelope with regard to evidence that we could bring in. With the WMD charge, some of the vile rhetoric in those FBI recordings might be ruled inadmissible because it wasn't directly related to the bomb-making plot itself. It wasn't relevant. But Tony wanted to make sure that the jury heard the rhetoric from the Crusaders. With the civil rights charge, that evidence could be shown to prove motive. These guys weren't just trying to blow up a building. I mean, obviously that's a huge part of what they were doing, but it was just as important, I think, to make a statement about what they were trying to do. Blowing up the building was just a tool, and, and what they were really trying to do was to drive away all of these Muslim refugees from Southwest Kansas and to send the message that you're not welcome here and we don't want you here. By going after both the WMD and the civil rights charge, Tony felt like he was able to send a message back using the law to make a qualitative statement on what the Crusaders had tried to do. His message was this, the Somali immigrants have civil rights, just like you and me, and we'll fight for them just as hard. In the two years since the arrests, Tony and his colleagues had put together his case like a jigsaw puzzle, carefully and methodically slotting evidence together, making it stronger, thinking about timing and presentation. He and his legal team spent hours walking Dan and Lula Harris, Curtis's girlfriend, through the case, preparing them for rough cross-examination. He had key pieces of FBI tape ready to be played to the jury, to show what type of men his opposition was representing. And then, it was time to convince a jury. Part of my job as a trial lawyer, as... After the jury's been picked and we start to present evidence, part of my job is to watch the jury and watch how they're receiving, the, how this is coming in. How do they perceive the witnesses? How do they perceive the evidence? I'm trying to figure out what's going on in their mind. He watched how the jury responded to the federal government's opening statement. So far, so good. The jury seemed engaged. Now it was the defense's turn. And then one of the defense attorneys in his opening plays a very short clip of Robin and Amy talking to Dan after the end of one of the meetings. And taken out of context, like they did, it sounded for all the world like they were trying to teach Dan how to frame the bad guys. The clip was from near the end of the investigation. Dan was in the FBI office with his handlers, Robin and Amy when Patrick calls him unexpectedly to arrange a previously unplanned meeting. The connection is spotty. Patrick jokes with Dan about the fact that he needs to get a new phone. Then they hang up. You can clearly hear Dan's persona fall away as the phone call ends. Uh, get that fucking new phone. I'll get I will get it. Uh, all right. Talk to you later, man. All right, later. Changes things a little bit. Yes. <laughs> so, so now. 
This was around the time that Dan is offering to outsource their hunt for explosives to his black market contacts. They're talking about how to introduce the idea of reaching out to Dan's Oklahoma cousins, which would lead them to the FBI undercover agent. Here's FBI agent Robin telling Dan how to broach the topic. I'd like to keep it to no further details, no further contact, and get them to tell us if they're really interested. And what I mean by them is get either Curtis or Gavin to say, we want you to talk to these people. You need to do this. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Get them to express that, and Dan can say, well, I have talked to them. The audio clip could be taken one of two ways by the jury. Either Dan was being guided through the process of being an informant, or he was being instructed on how to coerce the Crusaders into illegal activity. And by the end, the jurors were all kind of leaning forward in their seat like, huh, okay, we're, we're willing to listen to this, you know, prove, prove this, you know, we're, 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 we'll listen to you. Um, and that concerned me a great deal. The defense tactic was clear. Undermine Dan and show that the FBI agents had overstepped their bounds to entrap the Crusaders. But Tony was ready for them. You know, the, the defendants tried to make it seem like Dan and the FBI manipulated them. But we had example after example of militia members that these guys tried to recruit who saw the wrong in what they were trying to do. They recognized it and they said no. For example, there was Brody Benson. He owned the land where the first Crusaders meeting took place, the one where Dan had passed out. Brody testified in the first few days of the trial, as did Curtis's ex, Lula Harris. Brody Benson said, I talk out my ass all the time, but at the end of the day, I walk away. He did, but he didn't call the FBI. Lula, she sat there and listened to him play those videos and, and watch the videos about how to manufacture explosives. She knew that they were cooking explosives at G&G, and she didn't do anything. Nobody did anything except Dan. In the end, Brody and Lula chose which side they wanted to be on. Brody was so spooked by what he'd heard in the meeting that he resigned from the militia group almost immediately. And when Lula called the police to accuse Curtis of domestic violence, she didn't hold back on describing the bomb-making activity she'd seen. After those two had testified, it was time for Dan to take the stand. As he waited in the hallway outside the courtroom, he realized he wasn't as nervous as he thought he'd be. Maybe it was because, one way or another, this was the beginning of the last chapter of this case, and he was ready for it to be done. The courtroom door swung open, and Dan came face to face with his fellow crusaders. You know, I was told not to make contact with them, but they caught, they got caught, you know, Curtis Allen flipping me off. Give me the birdie and, and I just felt disgust with them, you know, I was like, I mean, they'd look, you could tell them looking at me, trying to, uh, try to intimidate me, try to think they're gonna intimidate me, like, if you were going to intimidate me, it would have been a long time ago, buddy. At one point, Curtis made his hand into a gun, mimed shooting Dan. A marshal had to tell him to knock it off. 
Their time waiting for trial hadn't mellowed their feelings toward him. Tony and Dan knew that how well the prosecution did in court, how much prison time the government could get for the Crusaders, wasn't all about the greater good. It was also about safety. Safety for the community, safety for Dan. Dan's testimony lasted a grueling five days. He was the key witness for Tony's team, someone who'd been there, saw it all unfold firsthand. Dan laid out the events of the previous months, every detail of their plotting, right back to the first day he met Patrick alone, the day Patrick threatened the two Muslim women outside the Somali store. Dan's testimony at trial was incredibly compelling because what he said is he's sitting in the truck with Patrick and he too is armed, just like all the other members of the militia. So he has a gun and Patrick gets so angry. Dan is so scared of what Patrick is going to do. Dan thinks he may have to shoot Patrick to keep Patrick from shooting the refugee. And and that was something that, you know, these guys' attorneys kind of came after Dan for. And, And I think it's easy to picture a scenario where somebody says that and it's not really genuine. Um, it's maybe a little bit um, self-aggrandizing. But when you watched, I'm sorry, when I watched Dan say it in court, you could tell that there was nothing self-aggrandizing about it. He was, he was scared. He was genuinely scared of having to hurt one human being to save another human being. During cross-examination, the defense tried to point to Dan's ability to lie, his skills in manipulating the truth and adopting the persona of a Muslim-hating crusader in order to gain the trust of the defendants. When Tony's team questioned him, they gave him the opportunity to add his own context. In your mind, are all lies created equal? They asked him. No, Dan said. I lied to save a life. If his ability to lie for someone's life made him sound like a bad person. He said he'd take that responsibility, and he'd lie again if he had to. The trial, for me, was a nightmare. They, each one of them had two attorneys. Basically, their only, their only defense was to discredit me and the FBI. Um, they, they tried to accuse the FBI of putting these ideas in their head, making them radical coming up with these ideas. They played so so many audio clips. And, you know, it wasn't just the audio clips. It's me hearing them, telling them exactly what happened too. But they had to basically try to drag me down, uh, make me feel like I was scum of the earth. You know, I made them do it. I set them up. The FBI paid me to set them up. Um, It was... It was rough. Dan had received payment for his informant work, but he hadn't asked for it. One day, about six months in, money started appearing. Dan didn't have a job, so he wasn't going to turn down the extra cash. The money covered gas and living expenses, and even his hospital bill when he collapsed in Brody Benson's field. Then he received an unexpected payout after the arrests, a big one, $15,000. All in all, it totaled nearly $33,000. In court, the defendant's lawyers painted Dan as a wannabe cop, someone down on his luck, enjoying the power that came with being an informant, someone who needed the money 
who might be willing to lie about what was happening in order to secure more informant work for himself. But Tony disagrees. 33 grand is hardly hitting the jackpot. I think that the people who say that this was about money didn't see Dan go through this process because there isn't enough money in the world to make that worth your time. The time he spent on this case, Tony says it doesn't even work out to minimum wage. The first time Tony heard about Dan Day was when Amy told him she was planning to ask Dan to observe Jason Crick's Three Percenters Militia Group. Tony tried to advise her against it. He couldn't see what she saw in Dan. He saw a liability, someone who could jeopardize the whole case. By the time Dan testified, Tony had no doubts left at all. One of the reasons that we got the result that we got at trial was because Dan did so well on the stand. He wasn't embellishing. He was so careful about what he said. Sometimes it was a little bit frustrating because he took so long to answer questions, but it was because he was working so hard to tell it exactly the way it happened. And so, you know, who is Dan Day? Dan Day is a patriot. Dan is a hero. In addition to Dan's testimony, Tony's team played multiple excerpts from the hours of FBI recordings they'd amassed. You've heard it in this series. Without the tapes, it might have been their word against Dan's. But with the tapes that Dan had secretly recorded, the jury could hear the men convicting themselves in their own words. The prosecutors were able to present a picture of the terrorists conspiring when they thought they couldn't be overheard to show where they hoped their path might one day lead them. And there was other evidence that post-arrest searches had yielded. Receipts for bomb-making supplies. Records of Gavin renting a storage locker that was full of incriminating equipment. In presenting their defense, the men's lawyers argued that the recording simply showed bluster, locker room talk, no action, and not any real criminal intent. The attack never would have continued being entertained, they claimed, without Dan or the FBI pushing it along. And it wasn't just Dan they tried to shift the blame onto. Patrick's lawyer called President Trump a bull in a china shop, who drove the election cycle of 2016 with violent, awful, hateful, and contentious rhetoric. The actions of people like Patrick should be included against the backdrop of the time, he said. In the end, the men's fate would rest with the jury. Over the time I've spent prosecuting cases, a lot of them complex and long cases in federal court, I've developed kind of a rule of thumb for myself. And that is, you end up seeing a day of deliberation for every week of testimony. So at that point, we'd had four to five weeks of testimony. So I figure four to five days of deliberation, just my rule of thumb. The jury is sent out on a Tuesday afternoon. By Tony's prediction, the earliest there will be a verdict is Friday afternoon. He's thinking jurors will want to decide before the weekend so they can head home and be done with the case. And in reality, we were at lunch on Wednesday when the court called and said, we've got a verdict. The jury's quick turnaround is a surprise. And Tony knows that a jury coming back early can mean one of two things. The jury either really agrees with the argument you presented or it really disagrees. He was nervous and he wasn't the only one. It was hard not to notice out of the corner of your eye them fidgeting as they talked to their defense counsel. 
Um, you could tell they were very nervous. All three of them were very nervous. Patrick, Curtis, and Gavin waited to have their fates dealt to them. Uh, count one was attempted use of a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, the jury's verdict was guilty. Count two was conspiracy to violate civil rights. The verdict was guilty. I felt like justice was served. The, despite all the concerns that I had that I did the right thing. Because there was times I, you know, I doubted myself. And, but I, I felt like it, you know, somewhat maybe put a target on myself. But I think I, it made me feel like I did the right thing. I, I felt proud of myself. Before their sentencing, scheduled for the following year, FBI agents went out and asked Somali residents in Garden City to speak to the impact the thwarted bomb plot had had on their lives, their own personal experience about the fear they'd felt when news of the plot broke on October 14, 2016. The more than dozen victim impact statements submitted to the court were used to show the judge the harm the Crusaders had caused, even though they'd never completed their plan. There was one statement from a Somali woman in the community that Tony remembers vividly. She gave, in my view, the most compelling victim impact statement. And she, she's young and a mom, and she talked about why she left Somalia and the fact that there's a hierarchy of needs and the greatest need is to be safe. And she didn't have that in Somalia and that's primarily why she fled. And she did have that in the United States until she heard what these three were trying to do. And she said that, she said the impact that that had on her is it robbed her of her sense of safety and security. And I thought the way that she described that to the judge was far more powerful than anything I could have said in, in arguing for a sentence. The judge also received the defendant's written statements, which included Curtis, Gavin, and Patrick's so-called apologies. Of the three, the judge said Curtis seemed to be the only one to express any kind of remorse by writing, to anyone who may have been put out or frightened by anything we did, I offer my sincere apologies and ask for forgiveness. The judge further said he was astonished by Gavin's response, where Gavin seemed to deflect blame and claimed the government painted me to be something that I'm not. And Patrick, the judge considered him starkly unrepentant. Patrick's only apology was to his family for what he called the literal hell the case had caused them. Tony remembers a moment in court where he could tell that these three men saw no wrong in what they did. I remember sort of moving away from the podium a little bit and pointing at, at Curtis and saying, you know, he thinks he's a, he's a patriot. That's how he views himself, when in reality, what he did here was the least patriotic thing that he could possibly do. You know, he attacked someone on the basis of their constitutional rights, their right to worship as they see fit. That's the least patriotic thing a person can do, in my view. Federal prosecutors were looking for the three to be sentenced for life. But in the end, the judge didn't go that far. Patrick Stein received 30 years in prison. 
Curtis Allen got 25 years, and Gavin Wright got 26, an added year for lying to the FBI during questioning. I'm glad we were successful. I look at it as something I was glad I could be involved with. Um, The unfortunate fact is that three men made very bad choices and are now sitting in prison for pretty close to the rest of their lives. I don't think that's something to high-five about. If it could happen in southwest Kansas, it could happen anywhere. And that's my biggest concern. And that's one of the main reasons I agreed to do this interview is that if one person steps forward and they hear something, report it. I mean, don't go do something stupid like I did and, uh, you know, risk your life or, or stuff. But report it. All you gotta do, call the FBI, call local law enforcement. You know, look out for things. There is no day that would go by that I don't feel gratitude for what he did, for his heroism. And I am forever grateful, grateful that he said something, he spoke up and he did something about it. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hello. As time went on, Dan Day was still looked to as a hero to lots of folks in Garden City. He even received a community service award from Police Chief Utz, and often he would be invited into people's homes and businesses for tea and thanked endlessly by the community, like this family in Garden City who lived in the West Mary Street apartments during the time of the plotted attack. Dan is accompanied by Ifra here. She's translating. What, uh, what Dan has done is the highest rank of humanity. Uh, we will forever be indebted to what he has done for us, and we appreciate everything that you did for us and our community, and we'll always remember you. We were so proud. Some, some of us, a lot of us showed up for you when you got the honor and the award. We were there to support you because we knew you were going to come. Yes. Uh, Dandy. Dandy. You are not safe in only my, my life, you said, my family. Uh, I appreciate that. This family invited Dan and his son Brandon over for tea. The woman in the room was pregnant at the time of the planned attack. You could hear her child in the background. Yazid likes you. Yazid, Yazid. Hey, Dan, Dan, look at me. Hi. 
I remember him when he was yeah. real little. Yeah, you remember little, him? Just a couple of days old. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. This yeah. guy here. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, his mom lived in those apartments. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Dan took it all in, in his characteristic, soft-spoken, matter-of-fact way. In the two years I'd gotten to know him, as I worked on a book about the case, he rarely showed emotion. He tended instead to display a seemingly inflappable veneer that comes to many who grow up experiencing the heartland's boom and bust cycles, where you learn to put your head down, take what comes. But beneath the exterior ran a river of strong feelings, of love for his family, for his hometown, and for doing the right and moral thing. Dan had been coping the past couple of years with persistent and worsening health conditions, yet facing them with that same matter-of-fact manner he had. When I first met and began interviewing Dan in 2019, there was always something health-related going on. The portable oxygen tank at our initial interviews, the heart attack and hospitalization the next year, the possibility of a heart transplant. He never complained, though, mentioning these things as if talking about the weather. Once again, it was, take what comes. His life, at times hard and challenging, and especially his work on the domestic terrorism case, had clearly taken its toll. Dan was always appreciative of the book I've written, White Hot Hate. And in the early spring, the last time we spoke, he was asking if I could send along a few more copies. I've got a huge extended family, he said with a laugh. Of course he could have more books. During my reporting and writing, I'd kept a distance of sorts from Dan, a journalistic distance. But once the book was published, we stayed in touch, and I like to think, became friends. We met up in Wichita in the fall, hung out and had dinner along with his son Brandon. Then in June came two voicemails. The first from Tony Mativi, the second from Brandon. Dan had died. His heart had given out. He was only 54 years old. I want people to know that my dad is, um, that what he did was just standing up for what's right, that anyone can stand up for what's right. Everyone from the story has moved on. Robin Smith has retired. Amy Kuhn has moved on to new cases. Tony Mativi has left the Justice Department and become the director of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. The undercover Brian, well, he's out there, likely working undercover somewhere else. But stories like these don't end. The story of Garden City is the story of Charlottesville, Virginia. It's the story of El Paso, Texas. We're dealing with a tragedy of 22 people who have perished by an evil, hateful act of a white supremacist. And it's the story of January 6th. Right there to the west front of the Capitol, there are people banging on the windows. They're banging on the doors. All I see is a It's the story of the dangerous combination of misinformation and hatred, of fringe views being encouraged, of fans stoking flames of division 
Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. At times, it can feel insurmountable, a wall of hatred too big to see past. In Garden City, there was a Dan Day who tried to find a way. Ask yourself, would you be willing to do what he did? Would you be willing to risk what he risked in exposing his family, in exposing his whole life to three men that have been convicted of plotting mass murder? Is that something you would do? That's something Dan Day did. Truth and Lies, The Informant. It's a production of ABC Audio and contains reporting and interviews conducted by George Stephanopoulos Productions for the documentary, The Informant, Fear and Faith in the Heartland, streaming now on Hulu. This podcast was written and produced by Carrie Ann Thomas, Madeline Wood, Marwa Mowaki, and Cameron Chetavian. Additional production by Iru Ekpenobi, Audrey Mostek, and Nania McLean. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Our story consultants were Chris Donovan and Eamon McNiff of George Stephanopoulos Productions. Music by Evan Viola. Scoring and mixing by Evan Viola and Rob Galane. Special thanks to George Stephanopoulos, Jennifer Joseph, Joe Park, Mike Levine, Monica De La Rosa, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi.